Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk about growth stock investing. While growth stocks have beaten value stocks over the past five to 10 years, it's important for investors to understand the realities of growth investing, how expectations impact valuations and future performance, how finding the best growth names can be challenging, and even if you do find those great growth stocks, history shows you have to have an iron stomach to deal with the volatility and individual stock-specific risk that comes with investing in these high flyers. While growth stock investing seems easy these days, there are a few things investors should consider as they look to find the best growth stocks in today's market. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion on growth stock investing. And oh, one more thing. We have some great interviews coming up, but we don't want to get away from our usual short episodes. So we'll be releasing our regular episodes every Monday as usual going forward, and we'll be posting interviews and other bonus episodes when we have them on Thursdays. Thanks so much. All right, today we're going to talk about um, the article you wrote, Realities of Growth Investing. And just to, I think, set the stage a little bit, the way that you open it up, and we've actually talked about this uh, quite a bit in our podcast, and a lot of investors know it, is this huge performance gap and difference in the performance of growth stocks versus value stocks. And I think in your article, you had the Russell 1000 growth ETF and the 1000 Russell 1000 value ETF. And you showed how wide the uh, performance gap and the difference is between um, those two uh, indices, which track basically large cap growth and value stocks. Um, and we'll put the actual chart to uh, this in the, in the podcast so people can kind of see what we're talking about. And I think you only ran it back five years. I think if you were to go back 10 years, I mean, this, this degree of outperformance would, would still um, exist. And, you know, to the point that you made, there's sort of this debate out there as to whether or not, you know, value investing works or growth investing is going to be the new regime going forward. And clearly a lot of investors, you know, have probably allocated to these, a lot of these growth stocks. And maybe we'll get into, you know, the, the, a lot of these names are what's powering the broader market indices, stuff like the S&P 500 higher. But I think what you were really trying to do is, you know, in your article, you were really trying to look at to say, okay, yeah, growth is outperformed. But let's look at sort of the characteristics of growth companies. And they're not necessarily warnings as much as they are just if you're going to seek out growth type stocks, there are some things that you really want it to make sure you pay attention to. So the first point that you made, and then I'll let you talk about this, is you know, growth investing is about finding diamonds in the rough. Yeah, you know, to take a step back, like you said, growth investing in the past decade has seemed really easy, and particularly in the past five years, because most growth companies have been outperforming the S&P 500. I actually saw a tweet, and I think it was Jake from Economic that put it on Twitter today that said, of, of everybody reading like this tweet, probably 99.9% .9 of you have seen growth beat value over your entire investing lifetime. And so that just shows how how strong this outperformance has been. And you know, with the struggles of value after the coronavirus, you're probably looking at a lot more than 10 years in terms of how long growth has beaten value. But my overall point was growth investing is not as easy as it has seemed in the past 10 years. Not to say at all that you, know, you can't do well with a growth strategy, but if, if you look at the long-term data, if you look at 100 years, 
growth stocks in general have underperformed the market. And so there, there have been things you had to do successfully in order to be a growth investor. You couldn't just buy growth as a group. And, and that was the point of my article was maybe to look at some of the things that are involved in being a successful growth investor, even though a lot of us that have been through this last, you know, this last decade might think growth investing is easier than it really is. Yeah. And so one of the reasons that growth stocks as a group tend to underperform is because usually um, they get bid up and the prices, they get too expensive from a valuation standpoint. So as the stocks go up in price because investors' expect expectations are higher as they're growing, but then ultimately a lot of these companies fail to deliver on those growth ex expectations and they have to come back down to reality. So that's one of the sort of common characteristics of these growth companies is they typically are expensive trading at higher than market multiples. And as sort of those profits revert to the mean, um, you know, those prices basically and those valuations have to come down. As growth stocks continue to do better, expectations continue to rise. And eventually you get to a point where they just can't meet those expectations. And a lot of people are talking about that in respect with respect to the FANG stocks right now. And, and that's fair because the expectations for the FANG stocks, particularly given their size, are exceptionally high right now. But one of the things we talked about in our podcast we just recorded with Nir Kassar is behind the FANG stocks, you've got even higher expectations because everybody is trying to figure out what the next FANG stocks are going to be, what the next Facebook is going to be. And so the valuations behind the FANG stocks in the growth space are even greater than the valuations of the FANG stocks. And so, yeah, I mean, growth is, is very, very challenging to do properly. And it, it's, it seemed easy, but the reality, is, the reality is, you know, most of these companies in that group behind the FANG stocks will not become the next Facebook and Netflix. Now, within there, and, and this is something I talked about in the article, you know, the, going back to your point about diamonds in the rough, within the growth space will be some of the most successful companies of the next 10 years. So if you look at your absolute best performers in the market over the next 10 years, you're going to probably find those in the growth space, even though growth is overvalued right now. The problem is not that. The problem is that the vast majority of the growth companies are probably not going to do well, and you're going to have to have a mechanism to find those diamonds in the rough in order to do well. And, and that's why a lot of people fall down in growth investing. As you look at Facebook now and say, oh, I, I obviously knew Facebook was going to be what it became. But the reality is there were a bunch of other companies around at that same time that a lot of people thought would be what Facebook has become, and they, they weren't able to do it. And so that whole aspect of you have to be able to find a very small group within a, a larger group that underperforms is one of the biggest challenges of growth investing. Uh, just a couple of comments on that. I was recently walking some investors through our guru analysis tool, and one of the strategies we run is the Peter Lynch strategy that he wrote about in One Up on Wall Street. And he basically outlined a growth at a reasonable price type of methodology. And we capture that and we run that on Validia. But one of the things that I was explaining to these investors was that for Lynch, he really wanted to find companies that were growing between 20 and 40% earnings growth rates. And then he basically also looked at the valuation and he took into consideration the peg ratio. Um, so for, for, for him, it was looking at you know, the growth rate relative to the valuation and trying to find those companies that were growing but he he understood that you know if you get these companies growing at 50 60 70 100% maintaining that growth is almost impossible and so you know the lynch model just as you were talking it just reminded me of that conversation i was having and how you know some strategies like that one try to handle um, those types of issues around um, growth. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the long-term results of growth, what you said will be very true, which is you're better off taking growth and pairing it with some other criteria, you know, whether it be quality criteria or some sort of valuation criteria or something, because, and I think O'Shaughnessy looked at this in his book, you know, if you look at just say the 
the stocks with the greatest sales growth, that's a, that over the long term is a terrible investment strategy. But in the most recent decade, the opposite has been true. You know, if you just looked at growth and didn't worry about anything else, that's been a great investment strategy. And as you started pairing these other things with growth, you, you've actually detracted from your returns. And so we've had oh, this weird period where what, what's worked over the long term has not worked in the most recent decade. And, and that's sort of the debate people are, are dealing with right now is, is this going to continue going forward? Has something changed? Or are we going to revert back to what we've seen in the long term, in which case you, to be a successful growth investor, you're going to have to be more selective about the types of stocks you pick. Your point about sort of these right tail stocks is a very important one too. So, you know, just to repeat, you know, a very small group of growth stocks ends up, you know, doing, uh, generating huge massive returns and many of the other stocks, you know, underperform the market. And so, so sort of like trying to, first of all, you need to understand that that's just how investing is. You know, a lot of times you have very few stocks driving a lot of the returns. It's even more uh, important, I guess, or pronounced in the growth stock category. But what I wanted just to ask you was, it does play into this um, idea around mark, uh, passive investing and sort of market cap weighted um, indices. Because you know, if you're holding something like the S&P 500, which is basically effectively holding the top 500 companies in the, in the US market, you know, you're going to, through that level of diversification, you know, you're going to be getting those stocks that have done the best out of that group just naturally because the, the portfolio and the index is market cap weighted. So I think that, you know, in, in some ways um, that market cap weighted uh, passive investing approach sort of uh, just inherently captures this ability to get the best growth names because those are the ones rising to the top. And you know, what, where I think it, it kind of gets a little bit, um, not dicey, but the, the period we've been in, you know, we've seen the, the largest technology names, the ones that are most familiar with a lot of people, those have been some of the ones that actually have done the best. And so I think you're getting this, it's like adding fuel to the fire. Like not only are those most popular stocks they've become the largest in the market cap, but they've also kind of, they've grown into their valuations to some extent and they've delivered on their expectations. And so I think like a lot of investors think like that's traditionally how growth stocks sort of operate and how they work and they're gonna be, but that's not always the case. So I don't know, I was just kind of making the point that, you know, within a market cap weighted index like the S&P 500, you sort of naturally have this ability to capture those really great performers. Um, but you know, when the wind comes out, of, when the sales come out of, uh, of those as well, you know, that's when you can, I guess, have problems with a market cap weight in that index. That, that's a great point because if you think about this problem of trying to find diamonds in the rough, one way to solve the problem of, of finding this small group of growth stocks that do really well in a group that doesn't do well is just to whole, own the whole market, own the S&P 500, own the index, because you're basically guaranteeing you're going to own the Facebooks and the Googles of the world. Now you're going to own some of the stocks that don't do well as well. But you may have a, probably have a better chance of benefiting from these growth stocks that way than you do trying to sit here and pick in advance, you know, what's going to be the next Amazon, what's going to be the next Facebook. And, and this is one of those situations where I think, you know, a quant strategy may be worse than a person. And, and I think, you know, your average, a person probably has a better chance of identifying those types of companies that will end up being successful. But I think neither one of them have a really great chance. If you look, it's a very small group of stocks 
from a much larger group. And so, like you said, the best thing for most investors in terms of benefiting from, from growth is probably just to own an index. And you know, at the end of the day, you're going to look 10 years from now and whatever the next Facebook and the next Amazon is, you're going to, you're going to at least own them. I mean, you may not be concentrated in them, but you're at least going to own them. Yeah. And I think that goes into your next point. I mean, a lot of these stocks, the best performers actually have massive amounts of volatility and they've seen huge drawdowns. So in the case of Amazon, which is what you used in your example here in the article, you know, you showed and you, you got this data using portfolio visualizer, which is a tool that you can type, you can put in Amazon versus the S&P 500 and you can see what the compounded uh, annualized growth rate is for Amazon versus the S&P, the standard deviation of the stock versus the market, the best year, the worst year, the maximum drawdown. And what your chart shows is that the maximum drawdown in Amazon so that means from the highest level to the lowest level was 93%. So I think the point you were trying to make was imagine you're an investor and you hold Amazon maybe with a couple other growth type names. I mean, what's the likelihood, what are the chances that you're gonna be able to hang on to a stock that falls 93%? I mean, very, very few. Um, so I think that that was a good, now, may, that might be, you know, we're kind of picking like maybe a really great performer um, like an Amazon, but you know, all these great performers, whether you look at like Microsoft, Apple, you know, they've all either gone through periods of significant massive losses, or in the case of Microsoft, I believe if you look at the long-term chart, like from, you know, 2000, which is when a lot of these companies were trading at crazy valuations through like 2010 stocks like that went nowhere because they were, they were so high. That's a little bit different of an example, but the point is, is, you know, you can either have massive drawdown or you can get valuations that are high and maybe the stock draws down or maybe it just doesn't produce returns um, for a long period of time. So you have to wait around. A lot of terrible charts on Twitter. I guess they call them chart crimes or whatever. People who post things that maybe you know, might be correct, but in, in context don't make a lot of sense. And the one I hate the most is this whole, if you invested $10,000 in the Amazon IPO, you'd have $6.8 million today. Because the reality is, it, no one really can do that. I mean, there are some select people that have done it and obviously index investors have done it in a broader portfolio, but in terms of having a focused position in Amazon, very few people can do it. And the first problem is the one we talked about before, which is this whole diamonds in the rough problem, which is how do you even know in advance that Amazon was gonna become Amazon? I mean, when Amazon started selling books, it's how many people actually understood what was gonna happen on the backside of that, very few. And the second one is, there, there's really two behavioral issues investors can have in holding stocks. One is when you have massive losses, like you talked about before, the 93% loss in Amazon, it's very, very hard to hold on. And, and if you've held Amazon since the IPO, you've had a lot of 50% losses and you've had some of these 90% plus losses. So it's most people could not have held through that. And then the second problem is it's really hard to hold through gains. So you know, we tend to be value investors. You know, if we double our money, we're pretty excited about that. You know, we're likely maybe to say it's time to sell. Well, if we make four times our money, now we're even more likely to sell. Well, if we make 10x our money, now we're really probably have already sold. Amazon has made 680x since its IPO. So what are the odds somebody, you know, as you keep thinking about like, oh, I got to lock in these gains. I got to lock in these gains. What are the odds you would have continued to hold through making 680 times your money. And then the third problem is the combination of both of those two problems, which is you saw with, with a stock like Amazon, you saw both of those come together at the same time. So for instance, if I'm already up four times my money and I see a 40% decline in the stock, that is really hard. You know, I wanna, not only do I, does the loss bother me, but also the, the you know, my desire to lock in my gains bothers me as well. So they're both kind of coming together. 
And so with Amazon, you had to, you know, make huge multiples on your money and then sustain huge losses after you've made huge multiples on your money and still hold through all of that. So the combination of those two things, it, it, it takes a very unique investor to have been able to hold Amazon from its IPO to now. Yeah, it just reminds me a little bit of that Peter Lynch quote that I think we've talked about in the past too, but you know, he once wrote and actually Warren Buffett used it in one of his annual letters is you don't want to cut your flowers to water your weeds, meaning you don't want to sell your winners to invest in bad performing stocks. That's kind of opposite of what a lot of value investors do. But I think the, the big point there, the important point is a lot, and to your point, a lot of these great performing growth stocks, you know, it's not, they're just a double or they're a triple. Um, they go on to produce a lot more than that. But in producing that, you have all this volatility and these drawdowns and it makes it almost impossible for, you know, most investors um, to stick with. What Lynch is talking about is he's, he's basically saying, you know, his advice there is contrary to what you want to naturally do as a human being. He's saying, you know, you should let your winners, winners run. And, you know, that's something I struggle with and he's right about it. But your natural inclination as a human being is when I start seeing these huge gains, I want to lock them in. And, and that's just what makes growth investing so difficult, especially when you end up holding these companies that do really well. Right. And I think, you know, um, you have to have a belief in the future growth of the company and you have to have a really um, solid understanding and conviction that the company is going to keep on growing. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're quant investors and a lot of the, the information we're looking at is, you know, past growth rates or whatever. And so we're not necessarily looking at the stories behind the stocks like Lynch was able to do and really find these, these companies that were benefiting from some type of secular change in the industry or some type of major development that allowed them to go on and be, you know, 10 or 20 baggers, um, which Lynch, Lynch was famous for, for finding. Um, in terms of uh, kind of concluding this, I mean, what are your, what are the concluding thoughts that I think, you know, you'd like to um, sort of wrap up with? Well, you know, I don't want to come off as a disgruntled value investor who's bashing growth because I think there actually are managers who adopt growth strategies who do very, very well over the long term. Although the group as a whole doesn't, there are managers like that. And so growth investing can be a very successful strategy. It's just trying to identify, you know, the growth stocks going to, that are going to do well and also trying to identify the managers that are going to do well in advance is very, very difficult. And I think the end conclusion is what we talked about earlier, which is for most people, the best way for them to deploy a growth strategy, although it maybe hasn't seemed like that in the past decade, because some of these growth strategies done really well, is to invest in a passive index. And you're effectively guaranteeing those, those stocks that have those 680 X returns like Amazon, you're guaranteeing once they get to a certain threshold of size, you're going to own them and you're going to ride them all the way up and you're not going to be affected by your emotions wanting to sell them during the declines and during the, you know, the big increases in the stock as well. Great. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap this up. We'll put um, the link to Jack's article along with some of uh, the charts that we referenced um, in the podcast. So we appreciate you guys uh, listening and we hope you enjoyed the discussion. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.